Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I have a very exciting guest for today. Personally, I am incredibly honored to have Tom Shepard with me on the podcast. Tom has been someone that I have admired since the very first days as an overland traveler for me. I remember walking into the Land Rover dealership in Scottsdale and seeing this book that said Vehicle Dependent Expedition Guide. And I remember my hands nearly trembling as I was asking the service counter person if it was actually for sale. And it was. And I still have that book today. And I have since purchased all of his other volumes. We worked with Tom on bringing the Vehicle Dependent Expedition Guide into the United States. His expeditions are considered some of the most effectively planned and executed in history. Some of these big ones were done before GPS, before modern communication and navigation. So they would use a sun compass and they crossed the entire length of the Sahara all off track from coast to coast. Tom Shepard is also an incredible photographer. He has a lot of passion for Northern Africa and has traveled there extensively. And he's also had a wide range of vehicles and every single one of them he prepares in nearly the same way with a great deal of simplicity and minimalism to his approach. There is a lot to learn from Tom. He's about to celebrate his 90th birthday. A huge happy birthday to Tom. This was such a joy for me to do. I'm so grateful that we had the chance to sit down and talk with Tom Shepard. And a special thanks to Rocky Talkies for their support of this week's podcast. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team in Denver. The radios are extremely rugged, easy to use, and compact, weighing in at just under eight ounces. They have a range of one to five miles in the mountains and up to 25 miles line of sight. The batteries will last from three to five days and you can recharge them easily via USB-C right in the vehicle. Our team uses Rocky Talkies and we also used them recently at the Overland Expo. The next Overland Expo, stop into our booth and say hello and check out the radios for yourself. And as a listener of the Overland Journal podcast, you can get 10% off a pair by going to rockytalkie.com forward slash Overland Journal. Thanks again, Rocky Talkie. Tom, it's very humbling for me to be sitting here with you because you're someone that I truly admire. Yeah. Um, and I'm grateful that we get to tell your story to the people that listen to the Overland Journal podcast. Very reassuring, actually, yeah. to hear your uh, your reaction uh, uh, when you got the book or when you first mm. saw it, yeah. um, which um, it helps me. It filled me with wonder, Tom. Yeah. It truly did. <laughs> yeah. Just from the cover image, I remember the, f- the first image that I saw that has stuck in my mind was, it was a, a photograph, I believe it was, of the Range Rover being craned onto a ship. Ah. <sighs> Yes. And I remember it as if I saw it 10 minutes ago. Yeah. Um, because again, it's those, it's those kinds of experiences that you've had that we're all seeking for. We're seeking yeah. for this adventure. Yeah. That was the Range Rover that broke the track rod, actually. Yeah. <laughs> as you will see. Yeah. <laughs> so, a surprise in, in, in store for me. <laughs> so I'd like to start from, from your military career. So you had a full career as a as a fighter pilot. And and how long were you in the British Air Force? I was in in the in the RAF for 25 years. Uh-huh. Uh, I started off at Cranwell, which is uh, very lucky to get in there. That's yeah. the Royal Air Force College where they train career officers. 
And I came out of there and went into a fighter squadron. And as a Cranwell graduate, they tend to give you a series of challenging jobs anyway. Mm. So again, you benefit from that. Yeah. And then I went in, into squadron, went on to the, onto the, as well as being a pilot, mm. I was also the, what they call the sea flight commander, which mm. looked after the technical side as well, which had broadened my, my horizons quite a lot. Well, and I can see that that not only that that discipline around being a pilot, but what you would have gained for insights around planning and logistics yeah. in that in that position of leadership, I, I suspect that that helped your future expeditions. It did. In, in point of fact, when I was in in Cyprus, that was the first thing that I applied myself to was getting a sort of mobility plan. Mm. Uh, there were Beverly's and Hastings aircraft, uh, cargo aircraft. And if we deployed anywhere, we would have to have X number of, of items of technical equipment mm. and, and gun packs and all kinds of stuff. And I made plans of, of these aircraft. And sure enough, we I can't even remember why, why we went there, actually, but we deployed to Jordan, just okay. over the road, you know, sure. from Cyprus. It sure. wasn't exactly the dark side of the moon. Yeah, <laughs> but, sure. But we went there and suddenly in the middle of the night, you know, the, uh, the flight commander came and said, hey, you've you still got those drawings. I said, well, yeah, I have as a matter of fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and off we went. And, uh, it, and it worked. The, I guess the first expedition that I'd like to talk about is, is one of the most notable ones that you've completed, which was the first successful west to east crossing of the entire Sahara from ocean to ocean. Yes. And what, what inspired that trip? By that time, I had done a number, a large number of uh, desert trips Mm -hmm. in in the Sahara in particular. And that's right. I remember now, it's all coming back to me. Yes, some things do come back to you eventually. (laughs) And it was, I can't remember the chap's name now, but a Frenchman who had gone into what what he named as the Mauritanian Empty Quarter. Okay. And uh, that was sort of like terra incognito, really. And no one had sort of been right across it. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be be great to go across there? And, and carry on. And then I was searching for some, I mean, you can't do that just for the hell of it. You know, it's a pretty expensive hobby. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, what can we do that's useful? And I contacted all manner of people, universities and the World Geographical Society and so on. And they came up, or I can't remember how it arose now, but anyway, we, it turned out that there hadn't been a complete coast-to-coast gravity survey mm. done before. And that was how I met up with Jeff Renner, who was the uh, the scientist on the trip, as well as a great... I mean, he was British Antarctic Survey, so mm. he knew all about operating in remote areas sure. and teamwork and all that kind of stuff. But he was immaculately thorough in, in what he did. And while we were all buzzing about, you know, getting uh, bogged or unbogged <laughs> or being cooked or sure. sorting out the water or whatever, Jeff was there looking... We used to t- pull his leg, actually, because his the a gravimeter is a device of enormous value, okay. frighteningly expensive. It came in in a shockproof, vibration-proof uh, box. Makes sense. Sure. And when he put it on the ground, he had to put it on the ground, then he had to look through. And we used to pull his leg, but he was looking through to, to the <laughs> devil. <in> the, <laughs> inside. But he went on and, and got this... Uh, it, it, it was unique. Oh, I mean, he sure. got recognition from the World Geographical Society. Yeah. So that was how the... The scientific aspect of the trip came. Well, and that genuinely, 
I think, shifts from an overland adventure to an expedition once you've either incorporated some degree of scientific weight to the trip or you're providing some medical support. You're doing some greater good than just being like I do, which is I, I tend to most of the time just be an adventurer <laughs> yeah. mucking about. No law against that. No <laughs> yeah, law against no. that. No. But, but it's, it's genuine, these expeditions that you've done because they incorporated so many other things. Like, for example, uh, you worked with UNESCO on yes. the, cave, the cave art and the rock art. Yeah, that was uh, after one of my uh, trips to, well, a number of my trips to, uh, to, to Libya. It occurred to me that there were these cave paintings there all around the Jebel Uwenat, which is the, we used to call it NASA's corner because yeah. we, on our air, aircraft, we, we couldn't go across Egypt. So we flew around that to get to, to, uh, uh, Sudan, uh, Khartoum. That mountain there, Jabal Uwenat and Akinu, uh, were absolutely alive. I mean, mm. literally alive with cave paintings, rock mm. art, carvings, and, and that kind of thing Incredible. all around the place. Incredible. And it, the, the, what that really said to you about the, the history of, of that place was, the, was indicated by the, the carvings themselves. Mm. There was one, uh, there are lots of, of, of carvings of, of cattle, mm. long-hauled cattle and uh, giraffes. Which is fascinating. Which, which indicates what, what it had been like in the past. I mean, when we went through there, when I went there on my first uh, visit in 1960, and I did a, another two visits after that, it was very barren. Mm. There was a, a spring, there was still a spring there. Mm. And in fact, on the first... Yes, the first trip I, w- I went down there, there were actually some people living there. Ah, interesting. So they were some, heaven knows how, carving out a, a living. Equally, though, it was on a, a traffic route from northern Sudan into Libya. Okay. Which were a lot of, lot of labor uh, went, went that way. And sure. The, the trucks went there. Yeah. Sure. And there was a, um, a customs post and guards and so on and so forth on, on, on the corner. That makes sense. Yeah. Looking back at that 1975 Trans-Sahara expedition, what were some of the the key learnings that you had? Because that is such an ambitious undertaking. Well, you're you're right. You know, there was some learning to do and some preparation Mm -hmm. to do. And what that involved, I thought it would be smart to do a reconnaissance. You know, I'd heard about the Mauritanian empty quarter and it sounded a um, a bit of a challenge. This was 1973. Now, my first trip in the desert had been in 1960 mm. with the Royal Air Force Regiment. That was my very first trip. And the Libyan sand sea was a nice sand sea because the, <laughs> the sand was friendly in as much as it wasn't so soft and fine and not so sort of wind, quite as wind blown. Well, it was wind formed, sure. but not wind blown. It behoved me, having heard what, what Mauritania was like, I thought we'd better go and take a sniff at this. Mm-hmm. And the question of the, the long range, you know, how can you uh, carry how many, fuel, 800 yeah. miles? Have you got enough fuel to do that? What, what vehicles are we going to use? A nice, agile vehicle like the Range Rover would go there like, like a bunny rabbit, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it would run out of fuel about a third of the way across. A four-ton truck would carry the load, but it was a bit of a, the power-weight ratio wasn't wasn't up to it, mm. and so on. So basically, what we did in nineteen in seventy-three, I might add, I got and I couldn't have done this without the sponsorship of the RAF. The RAF recognised the benefit to servicemen per se 
of organizing expeditions in challenging conditions, such as, as the desert, mm. and logistically challenging conditions and that mm. kind of thing. So to cut a long story short, I managed to persuade the, the RAF to, <laughs> A, to learn to obtain a Bedford four-ton truck uh, that, that we could use sure. as comparison A. Comparison B was the 110 Land Rover, which was a kind of one ton, no, no, about three-quarter ton, but all the loaders over the back axle. Then there was the Range Rover, which would go there like, like a bunny rabbit, but mm. it would, wouldn't carry the fuel. So enter stage left, uh, RAF Hercules mm. aircraft, into which we would cram these vehicles. <laughs> oh, no, you won't, said the man. Why not, I said, because they won't fit. So what we had to do then was to <laughs> take the wheels off the Land Rover, put the Land Rover on, onto the top, correction, start, put the Land Rover on top of the Bedford truck, <laughs> then sure. take the wheels off to lower it down so sure. it didn't hit the roof, and then take the Bedford truck with the Land Rover in and then the Range Rover in behind that. So off we went. And we landed at a place called Arak, where the Mor Mauritanians, lovely people, mm. and no less so were, were their soldiers and gendarmes and all the rest of it. So we landed one day at Iraq. The message, of course, hadn't actually got through <laughs> that we were coming. <laughs> so here we are, of a foreign invading force, you know, <laughs> complete with, with sure. MC and all this. Iraq. And these lovely <laughs> Mauritanian soldiers coming up and, and saying, uh, hey, um, can we, what can we do for you? <laughs> so there was a certain amount of negotiation went on. Yeah, but sure. to cut a long story, we got about, I suppose, 200 miles into the empty quarter, not without some problems, of course. Sure. Inevitably, yeah, the, the Range Rover galloping ahead, sure. you know, on deflated tyres and so on. The Land Rover hacking it, but yeah. with certain problems due to the load distribution and still three quarters of a ton not taking enough fuel and the bedford carrying you know a million jerry cans and and the food and the kitchen and and so on and so forth get that managing it in four-wheel drive but having to be towed every now and then tandem towed range rover at the front land rover bedford sure all together and yeah. then out out it came so we had several of those, and that gave me a very good idea of, of what, what the terrain was going to be like mm. and formed my idea then as to the kind of vehicles that we needed. And just happens to be that Land Rover released a new vehicle. Just happened. Yeah. I couldn't believe my luck. Yeah. I heard about that because the, you know, we, we looked, at, looked at the 110 Land Rover and said, no, nah, isn't going to do it. And the, and the, the power weight ratio on the, on the Bedford wasn't, wasn't any. But just at that time, the uh, FBRD, Fighting Vehicles Research and Development Unit, uh, had passed for production the forward control Land Rover mm -hmm. one, one, 101, mm -hmm. which being built for air dropping was very lightweight. The cockpit was an ergonomic catastrophe, actually, <laughs> sure. because, you know, there was about 50 ways you, you, could, you could cut yourself or bruise <laughs> sure. your leg or, or, or something like that. The steering wheel was about this, but it did the job. And the, the main payload, which have cons uh, comprised four 45-gallon drums, that's 400-litre drums of fuel, could mm. sit right in the middle mm. between the front axle and the rear transfer ideal weight distribution for sure no problem at all, all strapped down and so on and so forth 
And they so, were V8s, were they? Sorry? Were they V8s? Yes, they were. Yeah. Okay. V8 engine so you got uh, some power sitting like ratio. there to the driver. Yeah, sure. And, and warming him appropriately in, <laughs> in the sun. And there was even, by, by then further stripping it down, taking the top off, taking the windscreen off and all that kind of thing, we could mount the, the sun compass, which is what we were using as the principal navigation aid, mount the sun compass right there, free to get the sun for the shadow, for, for, the, for the gnomon, and, and navigate with and for the driver to see. So it was an ideal setup. For those that are watching on YouTube, you'll see these images that we were able to get from Tom that show the sun compass, which this would have all been pre-GPS. Did you also use um, any celestial navigation? Yes, we did. That, that was the thing. I had a great, great friend of mine, Phil May, who was a, then a corporal in the army, the British army, down in Salisbury. Mm. Uh, and he taught navigation oh, wow. to people. And he was as bright as a button. Mm. Very, very sharp indeed. Mm. And a really nice guy, very mm. calm, very proficient. We had him as the the overseer mm. on the astro shots. Yeah. Star shots, you would have to have at least three star Three star shots yeah. to, to get a fix. Yeah, now, as often as not, I mean, when on my subsequent trip, I was, if, if you got, got one or two of them cocked up, something like that, you'd have to do another one. You would spend yeah. all night you know, doing them. And I, I was taking on, on my, my later trip in 78, I was doing, being less proficient than Phil, <laughs> I was doing anything up to five or, or six star sure. shots to try and get a decent cocked out. The intersection lines of the, of the three position lines yeah. had to be, make a small topped hat, as, sure. as we call it. Sure. The sun compass would essentially give you a bearing, which is what you were primarily navigating. Yes, to. that's right. With the, the, the ingenuity of the sun, sun compass it is actually beyond praise. Mm. The Coles, I don't know who, I don't know very much about Mr. Coles, but mm. he deserves to go down in history. Mm. All the instructions were on on the face of the compass. You could give it to a chimpanzee and you'd say, oh yeah, da, 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 da. time of year, time of day, uh, sun time, Greenwich mean time, this kind of thing. You set it all, set it up, all on the on the face of the sun compass. Slide the gnome one up and down, move it round to the heading you wanted, drive with the compass on the on the movable reference item, and there you are. You had to be careful that every 15 minutes, as the sun went round, you had to change. Ah, sure. So, in fact, technically, you were actually, you were not going in a straight line. You were going in a series of shallow arcs. Sure. But you were getting there, and it was dead accurate. Incredible. And to, I think about today, the luxuries that we have for travel. I can navigate by GPS. I can have all of the, I showed you this morning on Gaia GPS, all these layers of maps. No law against it. (laughs) Yeah, but it's just, it's, it is fascinating. And to me, it just shows, you know, how much more proficient you had to be because you were going into, I mean, there was not even any satellite communication. You would have probably UHF radios would be the extent. Yeah, it it was sort of long wave radio, actually. We had to bounce aerials and everything else. And we had the chap there, uh, Kevin. Who, who could uh, do, do the Morse code yeah. and all that, da, 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 all very professional and everything else. Incredible. So we, we kept in touch uh, with, with the people at home yeah. there. When you finished that trip, what were the, the couple of either modifications to the vehicle or equipment that you brought along that you thought, this is very special, I'm going to use it from now on? Is there anything that I you really... I think it, it reaffirmed my faith, or in, my faith in the Sun Compass. Mm. It's proved 
why wouldn't it? The validity of having sound astro shots as backup. Mm. It emphasized the fact that you couldn't get good astro shots if there was cloud. Sure. <laughs> to uh, have to double bank on, on, on most things. Yeah. There. But you know, navigation wise, I mean, again, the, to do the the astro shot, you had a, pa- a pack of books about about that deep and about mm. that that long little tables, you know, the sure. astro tables. The mind boggles as to who wrote the books <laughs> or it's wrote in inverted commas. Impressive. Somebody had to do the mathematics for all that. Yeah, but, um, truly impressive. Yeah. And then you think about Shackleton and his crew in this t- tiny dory. Oh, that's right. Going across the ocean somehow. Taking these these headings. That's right. Yeah, with cold hands and and, and the, the, the climatic climatic mm. problems they had were were about four times what we had. Truly, sure. You know, truly. we had very high temperatures, but yeah. uh, it was livable. You could work. Yeah, the men who and women who have come before us and what they've accomplished is just yeah, yeah. truly That's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. So you finished this very notable expedition, and it received high praise. It was even used um, in Rolex advertisements, and it was, you know, it was it was documented well. In cla- yeah, fact, Ro- a Royal, great Geogra- video. Royal Geographical Society gave me the Ness Award, which mm-hmm. I was really quite quite uh, ha- happy so. about. Team event, but yeah, you know, sure. they, they gave it to me. But yeah. And then there was a video that came out on that. I've yeah. Seen it. I've seen it. It's quite good. As well as leading the, the trip, I was also the chief cinematographer. <laughs> so I had to, <laughs> went with, with Jeff down to, uh, again, it was an army unit down in the south of England to learn the, you know, the tenets of, of, uh, of shooting films mm. and cutaways and zoom shots and, you know, trying to get things in perspective. And above all, in, in the desert, you know, keeping the cameras clean. So difficult. And keeping the, the sand out. Yeah. I was, I was very pleased to note that Anglia television, as it was then, when they got the uh, when they got the film, they said, we can't believe how clean this is. <sighs> and I would spend actually about an hour in the, in the afternoon with, with, a, with a squash it, with a, with a, you know, blowing sand off the lenses and making sure that the... And then we had to cut, keep the film cool. <laughs> the, the film stock had to be kept cool. And sure. then when it was ex- exposed, it had to be kept cool. And sure. then it had to be mailed out of the country. The first thing was after the empty quarter crossing, uh, when we got down to Carno, we, we put a whole stack of, of, of film sure. in the post oh my and gosh. prayed that it would get oh through gosh. and everything yeah. else. And it did. It did. It oh, got through. Fantastic. You can imagine the customs people, oh, what's this, what's this, what's yeah. this, you know, but it, it got through. Unbelievable. And we, we shot some uh, more footage along the way and mailed that back from Khartoum mm. and again from Cairo because we had to get the inevitable shot yeah. by the pyramids. You sure. Know. It's because a wonderful film and, and I've I have found it a few times on, on YouTube. It looks it's great. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Oh god. That's yeah, fantastic. Same at last YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well and speaking of cinematography and, and photography, one of the things that the initial impression is, of course, being impressed by your by your CV, by your expeditions. But the more that I've gotten to know your content, especially for Overland Journal, it's the it's the stunning images that you've captured, and you have a very unique way of setting the vehicle as a as a minor character 
in a very beautiful place. So it's this sense of place that you've captured in your imagery that I find so exceptional. Is is photography one of your great loves? It certainly is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Hansen, whom I believe you know, and yes. I think most people in, in the expedition world knows, yeah. uh, he's always pulling my leg about because I have got this thing about wide angle lenses. <laughs> and I've just got a, an, an eight millimeter Samyang lens, which, mm. you know, take you can take a picture of the back of your head just about with this thing. <laughs> but the optics are super superb and it does give you a truly dynamic and in, inspiring new view mm. things that you would not have looked twice at you know mm. take it to a wide angle uh, a fisheye lens and say hey look at that yeah quite unusual. you know stop it down to f22 and get the get the sun sparkle from the sun and uh. all, all the rest of it you can include the sun in the shot because heavens our whole life is influenced by the sun why not put it in the shot photography is very much my, my thing yeah very much my thing some of your books that you've produced that that maybe people don't even know about is like, for example, Quiet for a Tuesday. Yes. Um, which is just a, it's a beautiful volume um, and a great title. And then the other one is uh, The Nobility of Wilderness. Which yes. Is, um, we just spent some time looking at some photos on your on your computer from that. And it, they're just beautiful, truly. Uh, yeah, I must admit, it, it, you can't take a good photograph unless you're inspired by the subject. And if you have also got a camera that you really chime with mm. uh, technically mm. and, and physically and functionally, um, then, you know, you, you won't get anywhere. Yeah. But I've, uh, as I say, it's, it's difficult not to be inspired by the desert uh, yes. and, and the photographer, particularly with the, with the light you get there. Mm. With the sun, when the sun is about, there's one shot I took with a, a fisheye lens and it's deliberately pointed up. It, it, no, it wasn't a fisheye lens. It was a very wide-angle lens, mm. very wide-angle lens. Uh, it was pointed up, so the horizon is curved. There's one vehicle there. The sky, there's a hell of a gradient on the sky going from pale blue right up to dark blue, and the sun is in the shot. And that actually encapsulates, mm. really, uh, in a harsh way. Uh, the you know the other angle of, of on the desert, um, which is the sun constantly. You, know, you don't you don't yeah. fool with that kind of thing, <laughs> and it really gets the message across. It does, and and your images they speak to the grandeur of Algeria and Tunisia and Libya, or these places that you've traveled, um, and so few people have been able to experience. Uh, my my total time in Algeria was minutes because I had accidentally crossed the border. So I would love to go back and I would love to spend yeah. the time like you have there. It's terribly sad, the, the <laughs> situation in Algeria. Yeah. It really is. I mean, the, the scenery there is, uh, if you forgive the expression, is to die for. It is, would you hope you wouldn't, but yeah. it is just in a class by itself. Mm. Gigantic rock outcrops that you get all smoothed over. The mind, you look at it, the mind boggles. You think, what is the temperature gradient of that after three months of high summer? Sure. What are the thermal stresses in it? Mm. And you can see the thermal stresses. They've, they've peeled away. You get an exfoliation at the top that the outer layer cracks away and it slides down to the bottom. And you get all this detritus around, around the bottom there, but you've still got this enormous rock outcrop there. Mm. Algeria is in a class by itself. What an incredible place, truly. Again, and it isn't all really hot and, hot and unbearable, because mm. if you go down to Tamanrasset, for example, you're up in the Hogar Mountains, and the, the scenery is just spectacular. Mm. 
there. And the temperature at 5,000 feet, you know, is very tall. Is lovely. Yeah, yeah. very tall. There's a little monastery there ah. up, up the road from Taman Rasid. And you, you climb up, and the, the, the monks there must have really enjoyed themselves, I think, because, <laughs> I, I mean, what a, what a place to be. One of the questions that I, I really wanted to ask you is that in, in all of these journeys that you've done, this incredible career of travel, how has that changed you as a person? I'm not sure that it has changed me as much as reaffirmed me, mm-hmm. by which I mean, I think it all started when I was about 10 years old. My father was a tea planter mm-hmm. up in the top right-hand corner of India. We came back in 1946 in, after uh, partition, and on the train from Calcutta to Bombay, it's a long old journey. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, overnight uh, j- journey there. And I woke up at uh, 10 years old, woke up about five, five o'clock in the morning. The, the rest of the family were asleep. And I looked out of the window. We were in the desert at that time. And that, that really did it. Yeah, that special. really did it for me. Um, it, it nailed it. Yeah. Uh, and it's been the same ever since, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, the deserts can do that for us. Yeah. The, 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 the space, the cleanliness. I mean, there's a line in, in, in the Lawrence of Arabia, uh, where an, an inspirational film, where he, Lawrence says, God, I love this place. Yeah. And he, he really got it. When he's also he's on, on his camel, <laughs> sing, singing on his camel and yeah. echoing off the, uh, off the mountains in, in Aqaba. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like nowhere else. Yeah, and that actually away. is where the Algerians, I think, have got to be careful how they handle it. You know, I don't want to, to sound ex- exclusive or anything, but you don't want, how can I put this tactfully? No, I can't put it tactfully. You don't want a noisy rabble going into, into, the, into the desert and leaving litter. You want people who really appreciate yeah. the beauty of the place. Respect it. And, and respect it. Yeah, yeah. It seems like that those formative experiences that we have in our youth, and for you, you were able to do what you were meant to do. Yeah, yeah. as I say, that was the, that was the impression formed on that train coming out to, from the e- east of Bombay, and it, it, it stayed with me ever since. Yeah. And I flew some transport command as a supernumerary pilot initially, uh, you know, flying over the desert. And you look down, and that is absolutely <laughs> tear-jerking. It sure. really is. You see the dawn coming up, and the long shadows cast by the dunes and everything. And the first time I flew over Jebel Uwena at, at NASA's corner, that, uh, that mountain on, on the bot there. It really, it really it reduced me to tears. Oh. It really was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And a special thanks to Onyx Off-Road for helping to support this week's podcast. Going further on your adventures is about having the right tools. The Onyx Off-Road app's intuitive maps make it easy to find trails and disperse camping. And their offline maps give you full GPS navigation capability without cell coverage. I'm also really excited about their new route builder for planning and sharing custom trips. It's got a snap to trail tool where you can just drop points where you want to go and a route automatically connects to the closest road or trail. You can build, save, and add routes to folders and share your entire trip with your buddies. You can find out more information on onxmaps.com. You can also find their apps in the Apple Store or whatever other device that you use. Thanks again, Onyx. You've had the opportunity to drive many different vehicles. 
and which, you know, everything from these original Range Rovers to Ford controls to, to uh, Defenders and G-Wagons and everything else, uh, which one was your favorite? Not the one that necessarily worked the best, but the one that you just mm. loved. Oh, I think unquestionably the, uh, the G-Wagon. Mm. When I got my G-Wagon, it, which would have been around 2000, year 2000, they were making the G-Wagon 461 as a van. So it got this immaculately conceived driveline, mm. you know, which was a lockable front diff, lockable back different change on the move please god make every vehicle capable of doing that uh you could change on the move from low range to high range essential when you're getting out of really soft sand Mm. and you cannot then stop to to fiddle about with gear levers so it had all the driveline functionality that you needed plus it was a van and it, it would carry a ton and a bit that i think tops the list coming up remarkably close. I'm just thinking of, the, of the, that original Ranger. That original Ranger I had was a, a development vehicle. Mm. We've got to give it some, some, some space <laughs> some there. Grace there. Yeah, yeah like, like broken uh, uh, track rods and things. <laughs> and think, oh, and, and the fuel pump went in. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> but that, that had potential. Again, sure. sadly, like the the G wagon, it's mm. gone down the money grubbing route yeah. of producing a over specified luxury vehicle mm. for people who never even dare go off road. But that that Range Rover had had the potential to to be a to be a winner, but it wasn't. Yeah. The next one down, I would say, the, the next honest vehicle. Surprisingly, for many people listening to this is the Jeep Renegade Trailhawk 2-litre diesel. A very modest-looking vehicle. It looks like an ordinary sort of school-run wagon. But my word, the only thing it lacks is great. It could do with a bit more ground clearance. Mm. But the gem of that is, and understated and unrewarded and unrecognised, is the ZF automatic transmission. Sure. It's got a transverse engine, so you've got very little in the way of space. Mm. I went round the G-Wagon factory and they, the, there were the chassis there being being laid out and they said, hey, this, is the, this is the one with the new, new seven-speed. The seven-speed transmission was about this long. Uh, sure. And I thought, wow, terrific. And it was practically colliding with the rear axle. <laughs> what they've done in the, in the Renegade is to produce a nine-speed gearbox yeah. 12 inches wide. And you think that is impossible. This is ZF. Nobody ever says, hey, ZF, terrific. They should do. They should haul up the flag for ZF. (laughs) That is a good transmission. Yeah, because it it is absolutely outstanding. There was an an initial production problem when they had to transfer for numbers, (laughs) had to transfer production to a USA because it did, didn't go right to start with. Mm. But the basic design is there, as produced by ZF. And yeah. then they got the, the production up, up to it. And then the traction control and all of that works quite well. It does. Yeah. It, it's got, it's got a, a, a diff lock. It hasn't yeah. got a front diff lock, yeah. but it's got a locking diff in, in the middle. In effect, it is an eight-speed usable range of gears, in point of fact, more like seven, mm. because you, you come out of the garage and... 100 yards down the road, it's in third gear. Yeah, sure. It starts off in second. First is kept for high days and holidays and 
sand that's that deep. Yeah, sure. And you can lock the, the rear diff. You can go in, into full-time four-wheel drive. It will revert to four by two all on its own. Mm. It's got, everything fuel. is selectable, beautifully ergonomically placed and mm. written and, and laid out. Oh, that's wonderful praise for the vehicle. I, I like them. They're, they, and they're quite space efficient. They're a little box. Oh, yes. A little box with wheels. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've taken the back seat out of mine. Mm. And when I took it to Algeria, I took the back seat out and I did a fairly comprehensive platform mod inside. Four jerry cans of fuel, two jerry cans of water, a whole lot of storage, little things, cupboards that lift up and all the rest of it. And I can sleep in it as well. In the UK, when it's cold, I can put the, the passenger seat forward and I can put a sleeping bag inside. And even when it's cold outside, you just crack the windows down a little <laughs> bit to get out. Beautiful. Perfect. Beautiful. The, the thing that I remember about the G-Wagon the last time that I was here was how minimal the modifications were to it. Yes. You had things that you had learned over 40 years yes. that worked in the desert. And I think it's helpful to kind of work through some of those things. I, I rem- One of the things that stood out to me was you did have a, a backup battery, but it was connected with a manual switching separator. Yes. Um, what, what's your motivation or what inspired you to go about it that way? I can't clearly remember. It will probably have been the fact that I didn't have the sensitive equipment required to know when to switch from the main battery to the the backup battery. Yeah, it was so simple and reliable. It was just behind the driver's seat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's right. I'm trying to remember what what was running off it. A lot of things. Oh, that's right, the interior lighting. Yeah, and I think your Uh, GPS uh, ran off it. That's right, yeah, that's right. The navigation equipment and and the interior lighting. And And then you had this other very clever roof-mounted, you know, kind of a ventilation system yeah. that you installed on the roof and it just would f- kind of ram air into the cabin. That's right. Very yeah. clever. And I've done it and we've got pictures of, of that. I also, I did initially on a Land Rover, mm. a 90-inch Land Rover, just a hood. Basically, I was using the air that had to hit this very steep windscreen and go up the windscreen. Sure. And that's all it had to do. So you did you never got rain going into it, but so the, the intake was actually horizontal ah. like that. So the air went in there and then a couple of uh, eyeball things in it. it no worked. power, no fan, no nothing. And it fantastic. was fantastic. Yeah, very simple. And then when you camp in the desert, I don't know if this is something that you still do, but it, in some of your photographs, it shows you sleeping on a cot. Is that your preference? Yes. Yeah. Well, Practical terms, you couldn't sleep in the vehicle because it was full of jerry cans sure. and things like that. I was loath to clobber up the roof with uh, heavy uh, drag-inducing rooftop tents and things sure. like that, from which you couldn't see any- anyway. Yeah, sure. But the joy of sitting on a on on a cot, a camp bed, which only about that far off the ground, yeah. is that you could turn over. Uh, I always slept with my feet facing south. Okay. So I would find that the constellations went over like this. Oh. <laughs> so I could tell, I could wake up in that. I didn't need to look at my watch. I knew where the plow was or, or some of the other constellations. I could say, oh, yeah, it's about, I've got another couple of hours to go uh-huh. here. And it, absolute magic. And, and to, to just open your eyes and see the stars, mm. you know, it's a shame to close your eyes, actually. Yeah. And in the moon, moonlight, of course, it yeah. was just unbelievable. 
you know, so those you, are the rewards of not locking yourself away in a tent or in the vehicle. Yeah. And yeah. the desert really lends itself well. One of the things that I do like about sleeping out under the stars is on the occasion that you get a little bit of rain, you hear that. It's amazing how we're still through evolution. We know that sound, that little pitter patter of the rain. Absolutely right. And we wake up quite easily from that. Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's in, so special. In fact, one time on, on that trip with the Range Rover and the trailer, which was logistically and, and uh, practically uh, challenging, <laughs> shall sure. we say, it was so windy one night, I couldn't sleep on, on the ground because I, would, I was part, being part of a sand dune. So I slept, I perched my mattress, strapped my mattress to the top of the trailer. <laughs> you know, I was chuckling all the time. I said, this, this could not get any worse. Yeah. I slept on top of the trailer on, on the mattress. And then halfway through the night, it pitter patter, pitter patter. <laughs> and I just, I, I don't believe this. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, even I, I've slept out in the UK in, in, you know, temperate zones, unquote. Uh, where you're liable to get rain anyway, and yeah. you, you, there's a you know a waterproof uh, sleeping bag you can get into. Sure, and and it's fine. You know, you just button it down, and you say, okay, rain away, get yeah. on that. The next thing that I was was hoping to talk about was the vehicle dependent expedition guide. You're on what edition now? Six. Edition Sorry, six. well, no, well, it's the sixth edition, sort of. I suppose, yeah. really, it's probably the seventh, but uh, it, it is called Edition 5A. Yeah. Because I made some very small additions to take care of issues with the Garmin, careful as I say this, yeah. Garmin <laughs> nav equipment, sure. which we'd had given trouble. And I wanted to straighten things out because it, the trouble looked worse than it was. Uh, sure. you, if you could, you could identify what was giving trouble, and that was completely separate from the accuracy of the navigation, oh, which sure. is probably the important bit. Yeah, so sure. my message was, you know, it's fine. It's it's working off satellites up there, which are absolutely spot on. Yeah. But some of the onboard equipment inevitably is not so expensively engineered as a satellite mm. is. And uh, you've got the bit that matters. So I wanted to incorporate that in the thing and also a glancing blow i mean at the very very early days yeah but i had to mention the, the rivian electric mm-hmm. uh, uh pickup which at, at the time was and that was what about nine months ago now at the time was the only sort of sensible they rivian seemed to have addressed the right things yes but it's still heavy and my caveat was what about the tires yeah. you get this big heavy vehicle okay it's got the power weight ratio but has he got the tyres? The tyres don't seem to have caught up. Now, it may well be that Mr. Rivian is saying, yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I wouldn't mind some 900 by 16s on this rather than 750s. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's Plus, of course, you can't get take jerry cans with an electric vehicle. Yeah, there's limitations to it. There, uh, having driven the Rivian uh, for many months, it's, oh, really? it's yeah. exceptional. It would it would give you a laugh for sure. Yeah, some fresh thinking there. Yeah. Really, I'd be very interested in it's, your view. Yeah, it's it's a very special vehicle, um, and we took it. We took a Rivian SUV to the most remote point that you can travel to on a road in North America. And it had just enough range to do that. And they really are quite capable. To your point, though, the sand would be its nemesis because, yes, because uh, of the weight. They're, they're, they're almost 9,000 pounds and it's a 20 inch wheel. 
So yes. you can only air them down so a, far. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. With a thin tire on it. And that's yeah. the thing. They want bigger wheel arches and the wheel and tire industry needs to catch up with this, this yeah. issue. If they're going to go, which they will have to, they're going to have to address, uh, you know, off-road vehicles uh, right. with electric. When you say you went to the extreme of range, were you a nervous wreck when you were getting near home? It, you know, it, it's it, range anxiety. It's a thing. You you really because there's not an easy way to solve it. No. You know, with an internal combustion vehicle, you can even stick your thumb out, and maybe the, a rancher comes by that has some extra fuel. Yeah. Or or you can take a, a jerry can and go into the town and come back with fuel. Yeah. Um, with the electric vehicle, it requires a very specialized solution That's which has right. to be yeah. what sort of range were you uh on on that trip we did almost 200 miles of off-road driving so it's uh, 100 out and 100 back no it was it was 100 out and then we took a slightly different route yeah. uh, to go out the the one advantage that the electric vehicles have that's really interesting is its ability to regen so anytime you're going yeah. downhill you're actually getting energy back into yes. the battery, which is quite interesting. It's something that an internal combustion vehicle can't do. Of course, the consumption sure. goes way down, but you're still, the engine's still purring along and it's not putting power back into the vehicle. But is that not just a question of putting back what you lost going up the hill? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's some, some overall loss um, just because it does take a lot more energy to go uphill than the regen can provide going down. Sure. Uh, but it, it's a it's a new technology and it's fascinating. I mean, it's not it going to be it's yeah. not going to be the solution to cross the Sahara yet. Maybe yeah. someday, but not yet. Everybody writes about that we're waiting for the big battery breakthrough. Yeah. And, and I think that that's it, isn't it? Really, to get the weight down. At some They're point getting very happen. much better than they were, aren't they? They really are. They really are. They keep getting more and more refined around that for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's been fun to watch the vehicle dependent expedition guide continue to get updated because the first volume was so significant and substantial that a lot of times those kinds of books never get kept up to date. Whereas between you and Jonathan's help, you've been able to keep for those that are listening Jonathan Hansen who's involved with the Overland Expo and and 7P International he helps absolutely yeah. with, with invaluable with help there yeah. and, and a, a solid perspective on yeah. some of the things that I, I'm saying. Yeah, he's know. very accomplished. Uh, I said, Hey, Jonathan, what do you think? And he says, yeah. he's very tactful there. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. He's, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a true gentleman and a great ambassador for what we love to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jonathan is included in some of the newer, newer volumes of the book. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So one of the things that I find is so interesting about the book is th that you do go into a lot of detail around the supporting equipment. So clothing, cooking, sleeping, shipping, you go into all of these supportive logistical components of, of vehicle-based travel. So those that are listening, I would highly encourage that you go, it's desertwinds.com, yes. is that right? And take a look at the book. I think Jonathan and Roseanne might still have some copies available. Yeah, I, I was particularly pleased, actually. Got a bit carried away. Actually, I spent a time in the Air Force as a test pilot, and alongside the arrangements at Farnborough was Aeromed center for the for the RAF and one, one got terribly analytical about everything mm. there and about clothing and for pilots and so on and so forth that caused me to rather go to town on the on the clothing side of things mm -hmm. 
And I was very pleased. I, I wondered if I'd overdone it, actually. I was very pleased, though, to hear from somebody in the clothing industry who said, hey, look, this, uh, yeah, this is, this is okay. Well, it helped. It, it, I think it helped me and I think many others, you know, inform a good baseline of decision making around equipment. The other thing that I really like about your vehicle dependent expedition guide is it shows mostly stock vehicles accomplishing these significant yes. feats. So it reminds people that you don't really need to, nor should you heavily modify a vehicle for long expeditions. Has that been your experience? You want to avoid heavy modifications? The manufacturers have a problem on their hands, mm. like the, the new Land Rovers, for example. Mm. When I heard it was coming out, I almost ordered one blind. Mm. But when I saw it, I thought, oh my Lord, you know, it's about 20% bigger than I would want. Isn't ideal for, well, it'll do an expedition, but it doesn't have a front diff lock. And you've got to be realistic and say, well, the guys who are paying the bills for this thing (laughs) at the factory and putting in all the design work, the production equipment, everything, they've got to get that money back. So they've got to sell a lot of these things. So they've got to sell to a lot of people, not just the expedition people. So things like that have rather lowered its expedition capability, I think. But to answer your question about modifications, I think in general, any kind of long range or even medium range expedition, uh, you're talking about taking out the back seats and using that for cargo, Mm. uh, unless it's very short range. Now, also, there is, there are, if you're not strapped for payload, if you're not really pushed for, for payload or, or up to your neck in jerry cans mm. of fuel and everything, you've probably got the payload to have a roof tent or something like that. And in the so-called temperate zones, you could have a, a roof tent and get into it and it, you're A, you're out of the way of insects, snakes sure. and that kind of stuff. And you're, you're protected from the rain and, and that kind of thing. Plus, you can peep out, you know, and say, it's not very nice out there. Put it down again. You know? So, yeah, it, it's kind of horses for courses. I think anything long range, I would say, yes, you have to do modifications. Mm. Anything short range or medium range, you could probably add accessories, provided they're not too heavy. Mm. I have a thing about external add-ons, yeah. you know, being realistic about it, and people with families and that kind of thing. Then, yeah, a roof tent is, is very... Provided, again, the weather is yeah. not too windy. You see these pictures and advertisements on the back of magazines and there's people there, we know, they've got the vehicle with with the the bedroom upstairs and there's a huge awning. And I think, you know, if the wind goes above five knots, this whole whole lot is going to finish off. (laughs) With you in it, maybe. Yeah, which happened to me in the desert with my good friend Jeff. It was very warm indeed. It was about 44 centigrade, but dry. So it wasn't as bad as it sounds. But and we thought, oh, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll where the hell are we going to camp tonight? And so we said, well, let's camp up on that hill there. So we camped up on the hill to ca- catch the breeze. Yeah, sure. <laughs> as we said, and before before you could say boo, there was a whirling, whirling whirlwind coming up, which took we we un- unloaded a lot, lot of kit at that stage, which it then the wind then distributed over the surrounding countryside. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean these adverts are all very well, but what about when the wind blows? Yeah. So. No, things conditions can change very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which yeah. is why a lot of times sleeping inside the vehicle is your best choice. That's if right. If you have room yeah, for it. Yeah. You have room for it. I had a Suzuki Jimny. Yeah, those are fun. 
What a sweetie. Yeah. What a little sweetie. Yeah. I mean, it looks like Son of G-Wagon. <laughs> it does. The look of it. It does. It's an awful shame. It came to the UK... And I thought I would have, I, again, I would have bought one. Unfortunately, the petrol version didn't accord with our sure. emission laws yeah, sure. and that kind of thing. And also the, the gearbox, the automatic gearbox wasn't just the top of, <laughs> top of the range there. <laughs> no, you know, it, it was nominally four. It was more like three, which yeah. in practice turned out like two. Yeah, that <laughs> but was if they put a, if they'd put a, a a really economical low emissions engine in it and and a decent uh, a ZF yeah. gearbox, that would have been the catch of jump. The thing about it was, small as it was, you could sleep in it, no problem at all. Yeah. Why? Because the seat, both seats, but certainly the passenger seat back, fold backwards, Fantastic. not forwards. Sure. Which I had to do in the the Jeep. You have it. The the back goes forward, so sure. you're actually sleeping at a, at an angle like ah. that. In the in the Jimny, it goes towards the back of the vehicle, so you can sleep on it, and it's long enough to take a six footer, no problem at all. Fantastic. Fantastic. And you, you've got all this light around, you just crack the windows down about <laughs> that much to get the air share. So beautiful. Yeah, so good. Absolute gem of a vehicle, that one. So for someone that is new to overland travel, what would be a couple pieces of advice that you would give them? Someone that was getting ready to start their own journey like you have. Ooh, know what you don't know. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be uh, afraid to be persistent in getting decent explanations about things. Above all, have an eye for detail. Mm. If someone accuses you of being a a granny or a nitpicker, say, that's fine. (laughs) That's what it's about. And it'll get you home. (laughs) Because it's the detail that really counts. Mm. Absolutely. No, that's great advice, Tom. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You still have the Jeep. Yes. And and have you put any thought to your next adventure that you'd like to do? It's difficult. As I say, politically, where can you go? Yeah. But I want to go. Sure. I would love to go back to Algeria. Yeah. But uh, it, it just is not for various reasons, uh, you know. Doesn't work. To do with here and prevailing circumstances that it's, it's not going to happen, yeah. I don't think. But in the meantime, I've, I've got it. I admire the engineering and the, the humble elegance of the design, round headlights. Yes. Remember round headlights? Yes. What, what a gem. <laughs> um, which sort of is is like saying, hey, you know, we, we're not carried away by this to cheap fashion <laughs> stuff. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. It's been an absolute joy to hear about your adventures, to share your story with our audience. Um, I would highly encourage those that are listening, take a look and see if you can find a vehicle-dependent expedition guide for yourself. It is an incredible volume. It is We have all called it the Bible of overlanding for a very long time, and it's a deserving attribute. Oh, you're very kind. And the, this companion book is 4x4 Driving, which, yes, which is quite good. hasn't required, because it's these are tenets which are sort of hallowed. Yes. Well, thank you for having me, and, and I hope I haven't bent your ears too much. No, I, I, I wish that we could spend all day <laughs> recording this, because there's so much to learn from you, Tom. You've been such an inspiration for me. You've reminded me of the importance of planning and logistics. And I've referred to your book throughout all of my expeditions around the world or, or my adventures around the world. And, and I'm just so grateful that we could spend the time today. Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir.